0: In this next half hour, you'll hear stories produced for Radio Boise's February radio race. I'm Olivia Weitz, and I helped curate these stories. Earlier this month, teams gathered at the station to produce stories on a theme vacant spaces. To explore this, producers went on an audio journey through rural and urban areas with reflections along the way. These pieces are part of a new initiative called the Voices Project. Through stories created by local producers, we want to give you a deeper sense of the people who make up this valley. In our view, news is stories about people. First up, a piece by Caleb Hansen. In the aftermath of last year's Pioneer fire, Caleb talks to Idaho City residents and Forest Service personnel to explore just how complex a shared ecosystem can be. It's
1: mostly tourism that we rely on. If people don't come in, it really
2: hurts. How much does the township of Idaho City rely on that, you think?
3: I would say at least 80%.
2: 2016 marked yet another abnormally large wildfire season for a better part of the Great American West. The Pioneer Fire last August through October ripped and ravaged its way through roughly 190,000 acres of land in the Boise National Forest. A wide confluence of factors are invisibly taking shape, but one thing is for certain is that it had a permanent impact on a lot of lives. These are some of their voices.
1: Oh, I'm Dee Woodstrom. In fact, most of the, I would say 99% of the shops are closed.
2: This is Lexi, and she's a waitress at Trudy's Kitchen.
1: World famous Trudy's
4: Kitchen. Pioneer Fire has slowed down business. Um, They're not grooming the trails as well for snowmobilers. They kind of want to keep people out of the forest.
2: And other business-owning voices like Nancy at HD's Hideout on Main Street. Usually
5: we get tons and tons of
3: snowmobilers up here, snowshoers, cross country people. It's not as abundant.
2: I was lucky enough to run into Dan Tracy, who is the chief of fire for the Idaho City Ranger District in the Boise National Forest for 45 years. You can have
5: all the personnel the equipment you want. And Mother Nature we, uh, controls fire. The kids bought you know, you've got 100-degree temperatures. To the worst, and and I we've had and drought. And we don't have, have the moisture the during the, the gun, course of the year, so those all play into, play into that.
2: The Pioneer Fire is twisting Idaho City's arm in a lot of different and unforeseen economic ways, from more frequent road closures due to heightened avalanche risk, which results in less road traffic moving through the town every single day too. less summer recreation traffic like hikers and campers due to more restrictive access to areas of the burn in the interest of safety. You know, Smokey
5: the Bear did too good of a job when he started. When yeah, he, started. he did. <laughs>
2: The Forestry Service is putting forth a valiant effort to engage with the public by having several hearings about the Pioneer Fire, where multiple Forestry Service employees were available for a free-form question on their areas of expertise.
5: And, you know, we're kind of in this situation throughout (laughs) forests across the West, so we're trying to, through management, reset some of these fire regimes, but more often than not, it's not acceptable socially if we're around, like, homes. You know, people don't want that. They'd rather have it removed through mechanical means.
2: That was Scott Newman, elaborating with the many social difficulties that the Forestry Service faces every single day. We're
6: trying to make something out of a bad situation.
2: That was John Wallace, who's been employed by the Forestry Service since 1997.
6: The area to the south, we were actually going to sail in there last fall and they, they burn up.
2: So this whole area, we had just finished a proposed treatment to do a bunch of thinning in there to restore it to predominantly Ponderosa Pine Forest. Okay. Just signed that document in June, and the fire started three weeks later. A similar reverberation of frustration seems to be in Idaho City.
5: Well, if it's been long six years ago, the Forest Services went back in and done probably prescribed fire in it, reduced some of the fuel loading. I think they've had some opportunities to stop the fire. But it's too late now.
2: So you're saying mitigation here can be a big yeah. problem. One of the specifically contentious issues surrounding the fallout of a fire is how much salvaging of dead wood the forestry service should or shouldn't be doing. Here's Mr. Tracy again. Do you think they should be salvaging more?
5: Yes, Forest Service is not allowed to log like they did 20 years ago.
2: The forestry service argument seems to be chock full of economic logic and reason. But to get it out, it had to be helicoptered, and we just can't afford
6: that. So that's why there's not more. The other reason there's not more is the capacity of what we have to prepare the, the sales and compare that to what industry can accept.
2: The Forest Service is taking proactive measures to improve fire recovery methods.
5: They didn't do a lot of this large-scale stuff on the Mountain Home district when it burned in 2012 and 13. We had three large fires, almost of this size. Two of the three were 150,000 acres each. But um, they didn't do a lot of this large-scale salvage up there. They did a few
6: primary roadways
5: that um, totaled to about 250 acres of roadside hazards.
6: So you know, it's not like we're just trying to go out to salvage to just get trees on the on the log truck into the mill. You know, there's there's a reason why we're doing it. All that money that we generate from cutting these dead ditch- trees, we can you know, help stabilize what's left out there. material that's in there, back in the 90s, it was common practice to go salvage. You know, we have the complaints, of, oh, you let that burn, just you can salvage.
2: The exodus of the mining and lodging industries from towns like Idaho City has historically raised Tensions between locals and land management across the board. Instances like the Pioneer Fire are only going to tighten this vice grip. One thing many Idaho City residents believe the Forestry Service can change right away is allowing for more ease of access to harvest personal deadfall for firewood to get them through the winter.
1: They need to let you into more areas so that you can go in and get the dead out. Go out to certain areas to get your firewood. of the people up here rely on the firewood to take them through the winter.
2: Regardless of your personal dispositions concerning how forest fires should be properly managed and how to deal with the economic fallout, there's no denying that Idaho City is in it for the long haul. There will be an opportunity for public comment on a revised version of the Pioneer Fire Management Plan put forth by the Boise National Forest on their website before they start their fire salvaging plans in the coming months this summer. Special thanks to Venetia Gempler of the Boise National Forest. Musical credit to local artist Dan Costello. My name is Caleb Hansen, and this piece was produced for Radio Boise's Voices Project.
0: If you're of child-rearing age, you may have been asked a certain question. Do you want to have kids? Elizabeth Corsentino asked two women, who both have extra room in their house, should kids come along, about what it's like being asked this private question.
3: When Women Choose. This is the story of Cassie and Vicky, two people who are similar demographically and face similar assumptions about their womanhood but are in two drastically different situations.
0: So this is
7: our travel map. And it's it's just what we've done together. The white is domestic, like places we've traveled together. And the red pins are international. And then the black pins are where we've lived together. When we go a new place, we just add a little pin.
3: Cassie Sturdemant of Boise gave me a tour of her new home and pointed out a map on the wall. She and her husband, Jarrett, recently moved back to Boise and I ran into them at an event, reuniting after several years apart. One of my first comments, So are you going to have
7: kids? People assume that we've moved home and bought a house to have babies.
3: We've probably all said something inappropriate but well-meaning and not understood why it caused problems. Digging into the assumptions we've made to pose the question in the first place can help.
7: So I posted on um, Facebook that we bought the house, and I posted this like picture. One comment in particular was just like, "Well, when are the babies coming?" And like I got texts from my friends that were just like, "Light him up, light him up," because because you're basically asking about someone's sex life. I guess that it's more of an annoyance and something that I find is like totally not anyone's business. But my heart does break for those individuals that really truly want to have children, are constantly pestered by people about having children, and then having fertility issues, for example, and cannot have children. Because it's a constant question in our lives as women, especially women in our early 30s that are married and...
3: I also spoke with Vicki from Boise, a friend from high school who recently shared some of her struggles with infertility online.
4: I was diagnosed with PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome. Fast forward to getting married, we kind of knew it might be a little difficult. Uh, so my husband and I, when we were ready to start, we had gone into the doctor and were surprised to find he also was bringing a problem to the table.
3: Vicki and her husband desperately want children of their own, but face many of the same invasive
4: comments from friends and family. So for him, it was bubbling up. And we actually told our family and opened ourselves up to those assumptions um, and criticisms and false information and false hope because so many people were like, well, go have your own kids. Why aren't you having your own kids? You know, the usual family things and finally got to be too much. And he just, just Kind of snapped over dinner one night with our family, and and said, "Because I can't. We've been trying to ha- trying for a year. With we have prepared a home. We have this huge house ready for a child. We have toys, and it's it can be a jail sometimes. You know, it, we literally have this empty space we fill with crap, um, and we close the door because it's heartbreaking whenever we go in there." Through the difficult process of fertility treatments,
3: Vicki and her husband found relationships were difficult to maintain, as well-meaning friends and family struggled to learn what supporting the couple really looks like.
4: I think it really, though, the, the foundation of it is they want to hope. You know, they want to hope for you. They don't like to see your pain. They want to have solutions. Um, I think as humans, we're solution people. And as Americans, we avoid pain. We don't know how to be uncomfortable, we don't know how to mourn. It's just not part of our cultural tradition. We're strong, we're independent, we're resourceful. I think we we've really learned or I've really learned to make a space for grief for people and maybe not give solutions as much So when we question our friends about their reproductive choices,
3: we've contributed to the cultural assumption that a woman's struggle or choice to have children needs to be public knowledge as if it defines her more than anything else.
7: There's so many reasons like not to have kids, but like the one, the biggest reason behind like why is I, I just don't want to. And there's no reason that I'm less of a woman just because I didn't biologically reproduce
3: music is as colorful as ever by broke for free and cylinder nine by chris zabriskie this piece was produced by elizabeth corsentino for radio
0: boise's voices project you're listening to radio boise in this half hour it's a special broadcast where we're airing stories from radio boise's february radio race we'll be right back
8: Programming on Radio Boise is supported in part by Gaston's Bakery. Crafting breads, croissants, and pastries served fresh around the Treasure Valley and now also available at their retail shop on the bench at 3651 West Overland at the corner of Layton. You can learn more at GastonsBakery.com or by following them on Facebook.
7: Support for Radio Boise comes from Indian Creek Winery. Indian Creek Winery is a second-generation, family-run vineyard and winery that has been crafting world-class wines for three decades. Indian Creek Winery is located 30 minutes from Boise near Cuna, and features a tasting room, an eclectic gift shop in a comfortable environment, and Shangri-La-like gardens. Indian Creek Wines are available at your local wine shop and restaurant. For winery hours and upcoming events, you can visit indiancreekwinery.com.
0: we heard a piece that touched on some psychological elements of vacant spaces. In this next piece, Wayne Burt takes you into another layer, this time into the spaces in his dreams. Relax. Relax. Despite the fact we can't measure it, it is a manifestation of something.
8: I've been having this dream. It's not a scary dream, but a strange dream. I'm in an open space, a space I can and cannot identify. I name the places by name, Ontario, Fruitland, Nampa, but the landscapes are kind of unrecognizable. Beautiful places I caught in slivers growing up in Canyon County, except with high cliffs over pristine valleys with castles built into them, and they're strung with a kind of weird lighting, like they have jewels in them. In my dream, I say, this is Ontario to whoever happens to be accompanying me, or this is Fruitland, I say in another one. But what does all that mean? I decided to consult with a clinical psychologist and a professor of psychology to find out.
2: Interestingly, you know, we think one of the functions of dreaming is to process out some uh, unpleasant emotional experiences, which actually could account for some of this idol, idolization of the, the past because people would not, they would filter out those un- unpleasant experiences or gotcha. those emotions associated with them.
8: That's Dr. Kyle Davis. He has a PhD in clinical psychology and specializes in treating insomnia.
2: Thoughts about dreaming is that even like the old adage, like, well, I just need to sleep on it, um, has, a, has a real purpose because people will end up um, being able to come to, to terms with the situation, come up with a solution after sleeping. And-
8: so if that's the solution, what's the problem? I try to correlate that with my waking life. As a valley grows bigger, more populated, with high-rise hotels and condos popping up, and more doors I walk into now containing establishments I'm not familiar with. I find my conscious now going to open spaces as well. A field, an empty lot, an image of a grove of poplars surrounded by barren farmland with an open sky stretching south. Sometimes I get afraid I'm going to walk directly into traffic when I think of these things. I get to where I kind of call it a compensation mechanism. Psychologists, however, call it idolization. John Thurer is a professor of psychology at the College of Idaho.
4: What we want to do is bring our unconscious mind Mm -hmm. more into a conscious
8: awareness. Carl Jung, Swiss psychiatrist who founded Analytical Psychology, puts it this way.
0: The stream of images within, you observe an aspect of the world.
4: It was by and large a pleasant assignment. Except for one thing, night after night, the major was plagued by the same reoccurring.
8: Open spaces are in my blood. I grew up in the country. The last three generations of my family were farmers of some sort, and maybe generations I don't know about before that. Which leads me to think about, as Dr. Thur brought up, the collective unconsciousness. Those things in your psyche, before you knew there was a psyche,
4: What's so fascinating is that all of the individuals that are looking at that, they they go back to all of the historic traditions, and that's that's 5,000 years ago.
8: So what does the dream mean? Am I idolizing space that maybe I suspect I might not be getting enough of? I don't know. I do know in the waking world that requires more vigilance than ever at intersections, more awareness riding my bike, more adjusting to skylines newly blocked by buildings that maybe are expressions for more vacant space is as much an interior endeavor as anything. I go back to the original question of what the dream means, except this time I put it to Dr. Davis. Well, as a a good psychologist, I'd probably ask you what you think of it first. Oh, well, back to the drawing board. But at least I have some coordinates. In the meantime, in my dreams, I give you idealized Ontario. I give you bejeweled Emmett. I give you pristine Parma. And maybe a mind sorting out its own land use issues. Music is past self, future self, and sunlight by Sophagus. Special thanks to Dr. Kyle Davis and Dr. John Thur. Produced by Wayne Burt for Radio Boise's Voices Project.
0: The piece you just heard is the last piece we're gonna broadcast from the February radio race. But we have two more stories we want to share with you in case you miss them. First here is a classic from the November race. This piece introduces us to a woman who decided to open up a Mexican restaurant in her garage. Afterwards, the restaurant gained a following through word of mouth.
6: This is Doña Maria. Mm, so good, Thank you. In order to protect her and her business, gracias, señor. we've changed her name and won't mention her location. She has a restaurant. Well, sort of. She also had a restaurant. But she has one now too. When it was legit, she used to dish out the classics of Mexican comida economia. Located among many different office buildings, she and her crew would be swamped during lunch. The volume was so high, her daughter, who would hop out in the dining room, would often shout to the back of the house as Doña Maria was cooking away in the kitchen. People could call in and order out, but this food wasn't meant to be eaten after the 10 minutes it was taken off the griddle, tossed into a carry out box, taken to your office, and eaten in the comfort of your own little space. It was meant to be eaten here. The beginning was good. It was really good. But by the second year, the recession had hit and everything, well, didn't work out so well. During that time, many businesses had to downsize. And despite being popular for the lunch crowd, she too had to shut down a year after they had thought they had finally got their business going. With her children either married or moved out of the house, she needed to do something to sustain herself. There wasn't anybody else in the picture, and she wasn't ready to rely on her children as a form of social security. the small amount of savings that the family had pitched in and scrounged together, it helped her get started up again, but this time in the comfort of her own home, or more specifically, out of her garage. As you walk in, you immediately notice these things. 1. A pot full of what is most likely filled with pozole. 2. The flat top. 3 a rotating cast of close confidants and neighbors sitting at the dining table in the middle of our garage. The dining table is draped with a tablecloth, safeguarded by linoleum, a staple in every Latino home. And four, plastic cups where yogurt and sour cream used to be, now filled with essential seasonings and condiments, among them, orégano and cane sugar called biloncillo, affectionately called a Spanish euphemism for female reproductive organs. Like many new, trending, up-and-coming restaurants, she has a rotating menu, often consisting of pozole, birria, gorditas, and with the equipment she has, the potential is endless. It's only by word of mouth and recommendation that you find yourself here. But very much unlike many up-and-coming restaurants, there are no pieces of art, no menu. The only constant things here are her, her equipment, and her food. Despite being known for her prowess in the kitchen, which now in this case also surrounds her dining table and guests, she rarely ever tries her food. Sometimes people tell her how delicious her food is or how spicy it is, but she, she wouldn't have a clue. The truth is, at the end of the day, she's content with some beans and queso cotija, maybe a fried egg if she's feeling it. She knows these recipes by heart and knows when the masa feels just right. These are the recipes and techniques taught to her by her mother and her grandmother, in oral culture, a tradition that she has continued to this day. Despite all this adversity, her mantra from the pomal straight into your belly has stayed the same, except now she's not only sharing her food, but her home for roughly $10 a dish. For Radio Boise, this is Hernán Guerra. Music is by Fantasy Crisis, and the song is called You Never Know.
0: This last piece that we're going to broadcast was produced by a Radio Boise team for an international radio race that we competed in last summer called the KCRW Radio Race. The event is put on by KCRW in Santa Monica, California. The theme was, and I quote, out of range. You'll hear from a transgender Native American who found a way to keep self-worth among a range of beliefs, despite challenges along the way. I'd like to introduce you to Aiden Warrior. He's well, I'll
3: let him tell you.
1: I am an artist. I am a friend. I am a mentor. I am an avid first edition book collector. And I also happen to be transgender. The two-spirit person is somebody who identifies as Native American, born LGBT. One of the stories that I remember hearing was one spoken by my auntie, Stephen Barrios, about, we had what was called a basket and bow sibling. Once you became age three or four, your gender identity sets in, whether you want to be male or female, however your brain is set up. So what we would do at that time is we'd lay a blanket out and we'd have girl things and guy things, and depending on what you grabbed was how you were raised. I knew at age four I wanted to be a boy, but what's really neat is the first craft I ever made was a bow and quiver. And if we go back to the bow and the basket ceremony, I chose the bow.
3: Being a two-spirit in a culture already marginalized made life nearly unlivable.
1: I used to have seven nightmares a night. My parents had to come sleep with me in my bed. I was terrified to sleep alone until probably about halfway through fourth grade. And all those anxiety, all those anxious nightmares stemmed from being in the wrong body. With my first shot of testosterone, They stopped. We've had people who have fully transitioned. You had someone who was born male, and they are fully a female now. They've gone through all their surgeries. To have someone stand there and point at them like they're a monster, just for trying to use the toilet, I just feel so hated all of the time, just for existing. So the suicide rate is incredibly high. And, you know, as a transitioning person, it's even higher. You know, we can't even get the statistics for the Indian reservations. But you know, I I honestly say every single one has attempted suicide. Our spiritual beliefs have space for me. I don't believe God wastes people. And that's the difference in our native culture is we find a use for everyone. We don't waste things, especially not people. Some of our uh, traditional roles, were storytellers, we're healers, we're holy people. We're counselors. Who better to counsel somebody on a relationship issue when they've lived as both male and female? Who better to mentor a youth than somebody who knows both roles? That was one of our biggest roles. And our society makes it so we can't do so. So that's really a rejection of our culture, of our values, um, you know, because people are stigmatizing what they're afraid of. It's very much out of range.
3: To find a path to a culture free of stigma, Aiden searches for a happy medium, which hopefully makes his experience more valuable to others.
1: I was the first Mr. Montana Two-Spirit. Uh, you have to demonstrate traditional skills as well as contemporary skills. You have to be able to powwow dance and represent at powwows. And you went up and you, you talked about being Two-Spirit in front of everyone. It was really scary sometimes. You didn't know how people were going to take it. You didn't know if you were safe doing it. You didn't know... You never know. So it's all that work coming down the line—the work I continue to do, the work my elders continue to do—to make these safe places for our Native Two-Spirit people. So when they're trying to say that, oh, scientifically, that you know, helping them transition is not a good thing. Yes, it is. And it's really weird when people see see me and they meet me now because I'm this happy, wonderful person. They don't remember the Professor Snape I used to be.
3: Music by Tony Enos This piece was produced by Kristen Cheney and Daniel Yoshida as part of the 24-hour radio race from KCRW's Independent Producer
0: Project. You've been listening to stories produced for Radio Boise's Voices Project. To hear these pieces again, visit Radio Boise's SoundCloud page online. Music in this broadcast is by Dan Costello. That's all for now, folks. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.